And welcome, one and all, to... Fuck! <laughs> Let's try that again. All right. I don't even remember how I normally start the show. All right, here we go. Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 163 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the full rotations episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that back in 1977 at the Long Beach, California World Championship, Russ Howell in the freestyle skateboarding tricks section performed a world record 163 full rotations. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and with that wonderful little bit of ancient skateboarding trivia, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim, who is really digging this three-day weekend thanks to MLK Day. That's right. Did uh, did you, as a, as a family, observe the holiday today? We celebrated, uh, or we commemorated, remembered um, MLK Day by staying up really, 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 really late last night and then getting up and going to IHOP. I thought you were going to say something like, oh, we went to go get chicken and waffles. No. No. Okay. No. I would not be be that kind of insensitive. (laughs) I mean, the kids had chocolate chip pancakes. Does that count? So, are they familiar with the holiday? Or not not the holiday, I guess. They had uh, today off, I would assume, since they stayed up late and they had breakfast. Even even I had today off from school. Is that a... Sorry, that was a present. That was a present from Mr. Beer. Oh, is that a Bud Light you're drinking? No, no, this is actually uh, our good friends uh, from the Blitz Weinhard Brewing Company have come up with Henry's Hard Soda. And this is actual, uh, it's a hard ginger ale made with cane sugar. Really? Does it taste like ginger ale? It actually tastes like a straight ginger drink. Not quite like your traditional ginger ale, but... You don't taste any alcohol in it whatsoever. Really? Okay. Yeah, that's one good thing about... Uh, it's Moscow Mules, right? That are made with uh, the ginger beer. Sure. Right? Yeah? Maybe? I have no idea. Oh, sure. Yeah. But that's what's great about Moscow Mules, if that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, because a ginger beer, if you get a good good ginger beer beer, it masks any taste of whatever crappy cheap liquor you mix with it. So I, I think with something like that, you really don't want to use great liquor if you're using great ginger beer, because it might cancel each other out in some form or fashion. That is true. I mean, unless you're just really going for the full strength, extra alcoholic style of putting your whiskey into your ginger ale and then just using a hard ginger ale along with it. So how was your week? Have you been doing a lot of drinking since... The Santa Claus of libations has visited visited you recently. Have you been <laughs> drinking it up for the past seven no, days? No, no, honestly, actually, I have not. 
Um, the really the only drinking I've done extracurricular drinking was on Saturday. The the wife and I had our twelve year wedding anniversary, um, and of course today is uh, the eighteenth as we record of January. So I'll let y'all do the math. And we, I, I, I took the I took the wife out to Landry's, and we had the full on seafood dinner, nice and everything. And so she had some she had some beverages, and I had uh, had a few beers, and that's really about the only drinking I did last week. I, it was it, I guess it was a slow week. It was a, it was a slow week. So what is extracurricular drinking as opposed to in curricular drinking? I consider any time that you go out to drink, extracurricular drink. So, so once you, like, once you leave the confines the of your property, I have spirits. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know. I mean, I have. You know, I've got the liquor here at the house. Right. I've got the beer and stuff. So, why would I want to go and uh, spend additional money when I can just drink here? So you're not one. So if if you have liquor at your house, like if you have Makers or Jameson or whatever, when you go out, you don't order. Jameson or Makers because you have it at home or does that not bother you as much? Can you go out and spend double the double the cashola oh, on a no, Jameson? No, I really can't. I really when I um if because I enjoy like really good rye whiskeys. Um I also uh, you know and and like uh like you've you've been here and you've had the really nice um extra you know xr crown and stuff that i that i keep here at the house oh yes and i can't i can't pay i can't bring myself to pay a bar that kind of money so i'll just slum it and do like some jack daniels or something so how is your triple x gold platinum crown doing is it still like is there still drink in it no, no, there's no more drink in that. Did you keep the it's bottle at least? Yes. Oh, you did. Are you are you putting like pennies in it as spare change? Actually, no. I, you know what? I haven't decided what I want to do with the bottle, and because naturally, I don't want to be one of the uh, tacky twenty somethings that stacks empty liquor bottles up on you know all over the place. Uh, so I want to do something cool with it. I don't know if it'll be like a change thing or. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll just get a nice whiskey with a cherry finish, and you know, just pour it back in there and make it look like it's the crown stuff, and just people will think it is. Um, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that. That's terrible. But I haven't decided yet. I spent my three day weekend drinking a lot of wine. We decided to all that commemorate well, I didn't the... See the specific wine drinking, but I saw the vineyard uh, in California. We ha- you have your Napa's and your Sonoma's. Uh, Napa is where all the really rich people go. For those who like to go out and drink at a vineyard affordably, we go to uh, Santa Barbara, uh, Los Olivos. We went there last year, but we decided this year to go back to San Luis Obispo. Uh, But instead of just going to San Luis Obispo, we went up for another 30 minutes or so north on the 101 and went to, I I think it's Paso Robles or or is it Robles, uh, Los Paso Robles, Robles, I don't know, whatever. But it's great. It's They have like uh, 350 vineyards there. Uh, and it felt like we had the entire town at our beck and call because nobody 
was there enjoying their their drinks and it's none of these people are uptight either even in santa barbara especially napa you have these uptight vineyards where their clientele you know are famous people people with a lot of cashola who go there and, and drop serious money on wine not here. I mean, it's run by families, locally owned. All the vineyard, uh, all the vineyards work together to help each other out, and they promote local wineries as well. And so it was a fun little community to kind of experience. That's what we did, uh, just drinking a lot of delicious Malbec and wine. One vineyard there that actually sells a lot of wine in Texas. So those of you in Texas listening to this, you probably go to Specs or even HEB, but it's called Bar Vineyards. And they have a delicious Malbec, and I suggest anybody give that a shot. It's really, really good. But that's only one of, like I said, 350 different vineyards there in Paso Robles or Robles or whatever. And that's it. That's been my week, kind of. Right on. Yeah. Right on. And, you know, I think we should just leave everybody in suspense as to um, the commemorating of MLK Day since we totally branched off and left it way behind. <laughs> I, well, uh, I, I did, okay, I did do, I did pay my respects, and I read a bunch of articles and went back and did read various passages and transcripts and essays by Dr. Martin Luther King. Were they his? They, they were his, and some that were written Ooh, about him as sorry, well. Maybe, uh, close. maybe today's not the best day to bring that up. Oh, 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 shit. Yeah. Oh, this episode. Yeah, you're probably right. Wait, what? He's like, he was guilty as shit of plagiarizing people. Oh, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah, his his thesis was like plagiarized. He he had a really big problem with stealing other people's work and not giving them credit for it. Really? Is this something that just came out or has it been like a known fact? Are you, are you, well, Okay. So I don't. Some, sometimes are you are you messing with me or are you really asking? I have to play the side of the audience. So that's what are... I'm seeing. This is what I mean. I don't know. Sometimes it, you know the, it, this is not this is not new information. <laughs> <clears throat> oh uh, no! I, I thought you meant that it wouldn't be a good time to talk about it since we're about to get into oh, race and the right, Academy Award right, stuff yeah, and the, the nominations the, yeah, and all yeah. that all that jazz. Hashtag Oscars so white, right? Yeah. Which, to be fair. Gotcha. It is. <laughs> I mean, this, this one is for sure. We'll get to that in about soon. I'm sure. <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> about soon. Uh, okay. Way to equivocate. There's that word again, Johnny. All right. Um, I guess then we will go ahead and we had no email this week. So if you feel like taking pity on us. Send an email to the show at slsgas.com. Other than that, shall we get to our news, sir? Yes, let's do this. Here we go, folks. Yes, it's the news. This week's news 
is, and, and for the next few weeks, folks, we really are going to try and keep the news as short as we can because we have got a whole lot of movies that we need to watch uh, and discuss and review for the Oscars coming up. So expect a lot more movies and um, for the next three or four weeks, actually five or six weeks, really. And uh, bear with us, have fun, especially if you like to try and keep up with us. Here's the news from me, from TheVerge.com, by way of Jameson Cox. The Ridiculous Six had a faster start than any other movie in Netflix history. That's right, folks. Now, the article does not go into it enough detail to say whether or not people actually watched the whole thing or just went and clicked on it and then went, oh, dear God, and stopped watching after, like, 12 minutes. But still, the fact that enough people clicked on it at all to generate this kind of response means there is more. There will be more Adam Sandler bullshit in the future. Um, this is, this is, this is it right here. So Netflix CEO Reed Hastings and Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos, um, had, uh, just finished taking questions uh, after the CES 2016 keynote. So this is uh, from the 6th of January, but still, this is scary. Sarandos said this. Quote, The Ridiculous Six. In the first 30 days on Netflix, it's been the most watched movie in the history of Netflix. It's also enjoyed a spot at number one in every territory we operate in. End quote there. Um, th this was designed, these statements at CES were designed to showcase just exactly how powerful Netflix's original programming was and how wise their decisions are in determining who they grant uh, movie deals with and licensing agreements. But still, oh my God, The Ridiculous Six is so bad. It's so bad. I don't understand... I don't know, Tim, what do you think? Was this just morbid curiosity or what? Well, there's a reason why Netflix gave Adam Sandler a four-picture contract. He has that pool. He makes a lot of money. Uh, even like Jack and Jill, that made money some years ago. Uh, he's done movies for Sony for, for years. On the lot, uh, his company, Happy Madison, has their offices. Uh, so he has a big relationship with Sony, but obviously... Due to some of the content that, yeah, it's very hit or miss, and a lot of it isn't that great, they really are kind of monitoring, If it, at least in my opinion, it feels like they're monitoring what his content, that they're going to allow him to create for their company, for their studio. So, of course, Netflix knows what kind of pull he has with audiences, and since so many people have Netflix... They're going to want to watch whatever Adam Sandler puts out. And on top of that, it's a, you know, if you will say, an all-star cast with everybody ever who has been in his movies are in it. They're going to check it out. They're going to see it. Even those who just have Netflix accounts who really don't care about Adam Sandler will probably watch it anyway. But I really don't care too much about this or it really doesn't mean a whole lot to me because every time Netflix comes out with its own original content... It's everywhere. It's all over Netflix. So whenever you log into Netflix, it's there. It's like the one th It's the first thing that pops up. So it's either, oh, okay, I'll give this a shot. 
or you choose not to watch it. And more than likely, since Adam Sandler is in it, and since it's a Western, and since it's a comedy, if no, if you have nothing else better to watch, why not give it a shot? In addition to that, I don't, does the article make any uh, mention of whether or not people are actually watching the movie from start to finish, or if they're watching 10 it minutes does not, of it? Again, yeah, it, it does not specify if they are watching it for the whole time. Because this the article is really more about... Uh, their programming overall, but this was from this again. This was from the CES uh, 2016. This was Netflix's keynote speech from that. So the idea is just they're saying that hey, look, you know, at, with all the bad press that it got, maybe that's the idea. It's just because they're spinning it as oh, look, see, no matter what we do, we've got good stuff versus. Well, it got bad press. It's an Adam Sandler movie. You know, it's, uh, yeah. So they don't say whether or not they watched all of, everybody watched all of it. But I know it took me, yeah, it's a two hour movie. I want to say that I had to watch it over the course of four or five days to get through all two hours of it. I started watching it and I couldn't finish it. I made it maybe 10 minutes and I, I gave up. It's not worth it. I to watched me. that whole godforsaken movie. Yeah, I think it was my penance. You know, is it worse than Joe Dirt or a little bit better than Joe Dirt too? I would say, I I would have to say that it's better than Joe Dirt because the thing where where Joe Dirt is just miserable all around, terrible idea because of, it was the, because of the sequel nature. You know, be careful what you wish for. Um, you're watch when you're watching Ridiculous Six, you're just thinking, Oh my god, what a waste of talent! And what a waste, you're just filled with disappointment. It's like when you, it's, it's like the kids that just know better, but still fuck up anyway, like they can't help themselves. And it's just, it's just bitter disappointment because there's such beautiful cinematography in this movie, and it's just in, in Ridiculous Six, and it's just wasted. It's wasted, and uh, you're just—it's you, kind of like you're waiting for a joke to happen, and then you're still wondering where the joke is after it happened. And then sometimes you'll just chuckle stupidly. I don't know. I'm just kind of sad. Out of five, what would you give it? Hmm. Point two five. Oh, well, that's better than the zero fucking star rating for <laughs> or yeah. zero star rating. There, and, and honestly, it's based on two things. One, the cinematography overall, because it really is well shot. I mean, it is kind of sad to say, but it, it really is well shot. Um, and two, there's one scene with Steve Buscemi that's actually pretty funny. So YouTube the scene. YouTube Steve yeah. Buscemi, Ridiculous Sex. Actually, you don't even need to YouTube it. You just you can just kind of skip around in Netflix. See, you can totally you can do it totally legit. <sighs> Anyways, um, all right. Well, that's actually really the only piece of news that I have uh, this week. Uh, and uh, Johnny was talking to us. Of course, this is at available in ADHD for those who don't already know. But this is Johnny Whitetrash. Uh, he had sent us a link to a uh, article. And it actually, and so we're going to kind of mention this article from um, 
that he linked to us, but it really has everything to do with Tim's news. So it ties in perfectly. So take it away, Tim. So yeah, uh, really the big movie news that came out of last week were the Academy Award nominees. And I'm going to read them off uh, just as a refresher for those of you who haven't heard about them or who haven't taken a look at the nominees uh, since they were initially released. But for Best Picture, you have The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, uh, The Martian, The Revenant, Room, Spotlight, and even Mad Max Fury Road. Actor in a leading role, Brian Cranston for Trumbo, Michael Fassbender, Steve Jobs, Eddie Redmayne for The Danish Girl, Matt Damon for The Martian, Leo DiCaprio for The Revenant. Actress in a leading role, Kate Blanchett, Carol, Brie Larson for The Room, Jennifer Lawrence for Joy, uh, Sorshi, Ronan for Brooklyn, Charlotte Rampling for 45 Years. Actor in a supporting role, Christian Bale for The Big Short, Mark Rylance for Bridge of Spies, Sylvester Stallone for Creed, Tom Hardy for The Revenant, Mark Ruffalo for Spotlight, actress in a supporting role, Jennifer Jason Lee, Hateful Eight, Rooney Mara, Carol, Rachel McAdams, Spotlight, Kate Winslet, Steve Jobs, Alicia Vikander for The Danish Girl. And, uh, and, and the nominees go on from there. Really, this little discussion, we're just going to kind of, I, I would assume at least, that we'll just focus more on Best Picture and Best Actor and Actress and Best Supporting Actor and Actress. And uh, for the record, and Matt, I guess I can kind of speak for you in saying that just on the record, we haven't seen every single one of these movies. So whatever input we have regarding this article that I'm kind of going to read from a little bit here, just keep in mind we haven't seen every single movie that has been nominated. But we will very shortly. In the next two weeks, I think we we will have seen, or we would have seen, all the best picture flicks and all of the best actor, actress, and supporting actor and actress flicks. This article that Johnny White Trash sent us last week is entitled No POC, No People of Color Deserve to be Nominated for an Oscar This Year, but that's not the point. This is via uk.complex.com on their uh, pop culture section. And this article is written by Andrew Grutadero. And it says this, For the second straight year, zero black actors were nominated for Academy Awards. And worse than last year, not even one movie prominently featuring black actors was nominated for Best Picture. Straight Outta Compton earned a nomination for Best Original Screenplay, but that movie was written by four white people. Creed was nominated. Well, Sylvester Stallone was for Best Supporting Actor. So it's no surprise that after nominations were announced yesterday morning, the popular hashtag, hashtag, OscarsSoWhite from 2015 came back with a vengeance. And not only was the hashtag's resurgence expected, it was also a reasonable reaction. The fact that the Academy Awards summed up an entire year of film in such a starkly pale way is astonishing and enraging, but hashtag Oscar so white in its usage shouldn't be misunderstood. Because even if you think the Oscars are a meaningless procession of artists being arbitrarily rewarded for 
paying their dues, or some boys club where the same people pat each other on the dick every year, the truth is that this time around, the Academy didn't really mess up in any egregious way by leaving black actors or creators off the ballot. This year, no black people deserved a nomination. Straight Outta Compton was a really well-made movie, and it defined expectations of being a rote, misappropriate biopic, which makes the screenwriting non-understandable, but it's not one of the best movies of the year. If there's any squabbling regarding a movie left out of the best picture race, it should be over Carol, or hashtag Oscar so Mel, but we can talk about that some other day. It also featured a stellar performance by newcomer Jason Mitchell as Easy e straight out of Compton did. The mix of vulnerability and volatility that Mitchell packed into the role carried and partially legitimized the entire movie. But at the same time, I have a hard time calling it one of the five best performances of the year. Spike Lee made one of the most daring movies of the year, She-Rock, and in that film, Tiona Paris was a force to be reckoned with. But that movie is also riddled with problems, and I can't fault the Academy for deciding to overlook it. Michael B. Jordan stepped up to the plate, yet again as Adonis Creed in Creed, but he's outacted by Stallone, who gives the weightiest performance in that movie. Jordan is good, but not great, even when he's running through the streets with his four woes. Really, the director of that movie, Ryan Coogler, has the most cause to be upset about being passed over by Oscar. Coogler made Rocky relevant again. He ushered the franchise into a new generation, handed it over to a new hero who's both three-dimensional and representative of an underrepresented group of people. And that's before even mentioning that Coogler co-wrote the damn thing. But can I fault the Academy for nominating Lenny Abramson, Alejandro G. Inyaratu, Tom McCarthy, Adam McKay, and George Miller, directors of movies better than Creed, over Coogler? Not really. But one year isn't really what we should be talking about. The hashtag OscarsSoWhite hashtag can either dispute that black actors, writers, and directors were ignored in 2015, or it can come to speak the real, larger issue, that there aren't enough black stories being told in Hollywood for those actors, writers, and directors to be properly acknowledged. Remember what Viola Davis said while accepting an Emmy in September? She was speaking specifically about women of color, but her words can be extended beyond gender. Quote, Let me tell you something. The only thing that separates women of color from anyone else is opportunity. You cannot win an Emmy for roles that are simply not there. End quote. Uh, and the article goes on from there for a little while longer. Matt, if I left anything out, do, do mention uh, whatever. Uh, but in, in a way, I kind of, I, I agree in, this, in the sense that you can't award nominations to people for the reasoning based on race, I, I guess. It should be based on the performance and based on the role. And I do agree, I do agree with this writer, with him saying again, that there are not enough roles in films catered towards African Americans. And it's same same thing with, with Latinos and whatnot okay. as well. I apologize. I, I want to jump in. That's actually the one thing I disagreed with. Um, I don't I, I don't know that the, that it's necessarily the, the fact that we don't have enough um, back end support or movies being I. Th I think that. Um, 
Okay. Let's take a movie like uh, Room. Okay. Just, I, we're not talking about Room yet. I know it's 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 in the next couple of weeks, but um, Room has been nominated for best, for best picture. Room is a movie that did not have to be um, cast with white people. It was. I'm not saying that that was that that was a blatantly racist decision or anything like that. But I think that there are amazing um, black actors and actresses who could have filled all of the roles in that film, and we still could have had a we still could have had it be nominated for best picture, and we still could have had it be uh, had Oscar nominations for best actress and best supporting actress. Um, so I don't necessarily think that it's all about back-end support or roles being, or things that have to be developed. I think that, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I believe that it is a little bit more complicated than that because there is cast, there are casting decisions that are made and I don't, and I'm not pointing fingers or naming names because it's stupid. I'm not in the, I'm not enough in the know to be able to, you know, do that kind of finger pointing or, or be malicious about it. But I, I, I do believe that we have enough, um, we have enough ideas in Hollywood and enough, um, really compelling stories that can be told that, that are interchangeable in their roles. Now, does that mean, of course, that movies like Straight Outta Compton shouldn't be made? Of course not. Does that mean that you should, you know, re, you know, interchange roles in those kinds of movies? Of course not. But for but for movies like Room, uh, sure. For and, and to a lesser extent, movies in the vein of not exactly the same as Brooklyn, you could do similar styles of stories not obviously not about an irish immigrant but about you know choosing two different paths in life uh, especially divergent and burgeoning love stories that could be cast and given great um you know great vigor and just amazing zest with african americans being cast in those in those kinds of roles and for me, it's more of a question of, well, why don't, why aren't we doing more of that? Does that, does that make sense? I don't know if I'm going off the rails here because I'm certainly not trying to. But that's kind of what I meant as well. Uh, what I mean, creating content for a specific demographic, or not necessarily demographic, but uh, for like African Americans, I mean, developing a story that can be either white or black, like what you said, room. And that's, I think that kind of falls into what this guy is kind of saying as well. At least I, I kind of I would assume that as well. To where there are all these movies, and instead of going the route of like, well, you know, this could be a black family. This could be uh, an African-American uh, mother and her son that got kidnapped. You know, and, they're the, and, and it's, a, you know, it's just a tale of empowerment in, in its own right. And that is a tale that transcends, or that is a subject that transcends all races. And why not do that? And I think, I do agree with you in saying that more choices like that should be made. But real quick, a couple things that got me about the nominations this year. Spot, uh, for Best Picture, Spotlight and Mad Max Fury Road. 
I think okay what kind of gets me what what actually what pisses me off a little bit is i thought mad max fury road was a really good movie i thoroughly enjoyed it i loved it is it a perfect movie not at all and matt i think we all kind of remember your comments on it about how the special effects are a little uh didn't really live up to the big grandiose car chase scenes and all that jazz but the entire movie well, it was just the beginning and the end right I, yeah i was yeah. My, my my hampering was the cgi at the beginning and the end the middle was awesome yeah yeah and, and but the entire movie is a big car chase scene and yes there is a plot there but the plot the the underlining story that's going on doesn't really match the action of the film does that make a good movie does that qualify as a best picture i really don't think so especially when you have movies like love and mercy which matt and i absolutely loved five star movie for matt i think it was a 4.75 movie for me straight out of compton even i know matt you love straight out of compton i thought it was a really good movie if anything f gary gray deserved a best director nomination especially and i thought the uh, the movie itself could have uh, gotten a best picture nomination it's a great film and i think especially it is better than spotlight yes spotlight is a really good movie and the writing is really good and the story is riveting i suppose but it's a story-based movie you know just because the content is something that we should all be familiar with in that the con- in, which in the content itself is very engrossing, that doesn't automatically mean best picture film. In fact, I thought The Big Short was a better movie than Spotlight altogether. Also, I think Straight Outta Compton was a better movie. And another movie that got shunned, not necessarily shunned, but got duped uh, for an Oscar nomination is Beasts of No Nation. You have... Idris Elba's performance as the commandment. And you have Abraham, Abraham Atah, who played Agu, the little boy. Talk about amazing acting. Even the young kid, uh, the little boy in the room. Stellar acting. And yet, the last little boy to be nominated... I know there, I know there, was, a, there was a kid that got nominated not too long ago. Uh, oh, yeah. Beasts, beasts of the... Beasts of the... Beasts of the... Oh, shit. Beasts of the Southern Wild. Shit, is that the name of the movie? Yes, yes, that's it. I was just about to jump in and say that. Yeah, yeah, with the the little girl that was in it. Southern Wild. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And she was great. But these kids, especially the the little boy in The Room and uh, the young man in Beasts of No Nation, Abraham Attah, are stellar, yet no nomination. Instead, for Best Actor... In Best Supporting Actor, we have Brian Cranston Trumbo, Michael Fassbender... And actually, out of all these, I my only issue is with Matt Damon and Michael Fassbender for leading male and for supporting role, uh, Christian Bale and Mark Ruffalo. And I, Matt, I know you have some feeling towards uh, Steve Jobs, which I'm sure we'll cover later <laughs> on. But yeah. but do you agree? Do I, you think that uh, Idris Elba or the or the the other guy in the movie or well, even okay, Will Smith see, in Concussion, I thought he did really well. Uh, and again, for me, I would lean more towards, I think, uh, Idris Elba having been snubbed over Will Smith. And and again, as of last week, when we talked about that, because in Concussion, again, I think everybody did a fine job. But for me, the story wasn't compelling enough. And so everybody doing a good job doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best job that they could have done. 
Idris Elba, um, I was not as enamored of Beasts of No Nation as you were, but I still think he did a fine job. And quite frankly, um, I think that it was such a waste for Fassbender this year. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't even believe Or And if you want to say that Idris Elba shared the screen with the young boy from the movie, then fine. Yes, I would say Mark Ruffalo um, and his nomination for supporting actor also. Those are two easy spots for me. I don't even know why they've been nominated. Um, you know, for these specific roles, not that they aren't good actors, but just for these specific roles, I think that's a waste of... Um, I think they were wasted slots. And yes, for those two spots specifically, I would think that Idris Elba would be a fine choice in either category. Yeah, and again, Love and Mercy was my big upset. I mean, oh god, easily yes. best what picture, best director, best uh best <laughs> uh song, sound, actors, John Cusack, Paul Dano, Paul Giamatti, even Elizabeth Banks did a great job in you that know, film. You know, I would even I could even forgive the lack of the individual actor and actress nominations there. Because even though, I mean, I'm sorry, I thought Paul Dano was just absolutely fantastic in that movie. I could forgive those if you put that in for best picture, right? And we're going to get to this in a little bit, but seriously, Big Short, are you fucking serious right now? Big, Big Short's best picture, but Love and Mercy isn't? Yeah, <laughs> um, Big Short. I mean, you, Big Short's a good movie, but not not better than Love and Mercy. Uh, yeah, at all. Okay. Ooh, so this should be that should be a good discussion. Hashtag Oscar so white. We feel you. Okay, we feel that. But yeah, I mean, again, straight out of Compton, F. Gary Gray. I mean, in accordance to the. Uh, to, to the article that we were just talking about F Gary Gray for director and Jason Mitchell, who was easy E I thought he was really good and better than at least one or two of the other nominations. This is not just an isolated article either. Those of you who don't follow entertainment news or anything like that, this is all over the place. I mean, it's on nightly news. It's front page of newspapers, front page of Yahoo or Yahoo's front page. Now you have people boycotting the Oscars. Chris Rock is the host. So you know he's probably going to have a heyday with it uh, during the actual broadcast. But uh, like Jada Pinkett Smith and... You know it would be great? What's up? If (laughs) Chris Rock's opening joke needs to be Bill Murray walking out on stage and introducing himself as Chris Rock. (laughs) I think that would just be like... That, if that didn't bring the house down, I don't know what would. That would just be absolutely fucking phenomenal. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that would, yes. I'm sorry. No, that no, but that's correct? that's I, it pretty much. I yeah. mean, did you have anything else to note? Nope. Add? <laughs> uh, awesome. All right. Well, um, like I said, yeah, My the only other thing I had was that article that you clearly also used to talk about what we were talking about. So I think that's going to be the news and we should get right into three squared. Should we not? We must. Then let's do it, folks. It is three squared. 
and this week uh, for Three Squared, we are going to be honoring uh, the passing of David Bowie, and we're going to be discussing three movie roles uh, that we consider to be among his best. Uh, Tim, would you like to go first, or would you like me to go first? The Three Squared Ball is still in your court. <laughs> Guess I need to go see the doctor about that. Anyway. All right. So I have a confession to make, folks. And I must qualify this statement with a pre with this. You know, I must qualify the statement of what I just said with this statement. I firmly believe that David Bowie was an amazing, amazing artist, talented musician, excellent uh driving force in pop culture not to mention um in pushing uh in pushing the envelope in terms of sexuality and being able to be open with one's sexuality um in good lord in in marriage especially you know in, in pushing uh that envelope as well with his supermodel wife uh Iman so right you, you know you've got uh all these wonderful things that he has in this ma amazing legacy of music as well. But I am just not a big fan of David Bowie as an actor. Okay. Um, I, I, I can certainly respect his, his body of work. And I know that a lot of the things that he has done in music was also reflected in his work, but it just wasn't for me. I'm sorry. So I have three kind of really weird picks for films for him, mainly because he plays very, very small roles in them uh, for the most part. But I, I just that this is why I'm picking these three films. So there you go. Please, please don't hate me too much. Uh, from 1992, we're going to begin with, this will be in chronological order. So from 1992, we'll be doing Twin Peaks, Fire, Walk With Me. And um, this is a uh, film that is kind of a, uh, what am I thinking of here? Um, pilot? It's a, well, no, it wasn't a pilot. It was basically like the kind of the prequel more, more or less, kind of explaining a little bit more of of the actual murder in and of itself into Teresa Banks. Uh, uh, well, it, and, it, well, it came also, out first, right? No, no. Oh, I thought it came out first, and then and then the show came out after it. No, it's the other way around. Because the the show, um. Yeah, yeah, no, the ser yeah, the series was first and then the finale because the series finale wasn't um wasn't ever clear. Which is why the new Twin Peaks comes out of uh, later on this year or next year. Yeah. Okay, so the yeah, the the show was in 1990 and 1991. And then Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me came out in 1992. Oh. It, yeah, it's a con yeah. So it was a continuation. I was thinking it was a prequel, but it's yeah. It does kind of both. It it is a sequel to the show, but it acts as kind of a prequel in a way to the narrative. This is Twin Peaks, folks. If you don't know about it, then you're gonna be just lost. So don't worry about it. Anyway, um, 
David Bowie plays Philip Jeffries in this film, and he is a, a long lost FBI agent that uh, um, th- that is referenced in the previous in in Twin Peaks, but uh, comes back from here. It's it's not a super huge role in the film. But it is nonetheless an important role in the movie. I was a fan of Twin Peaks due to a buddy of mine back in high school. Um, his name is Wes. And so he got me into Twin Peaks. And then, of course, I ended up watching the watching all this wonderful, fun stuff here. I... Um, Thought it was. A, I thought this was a pretty cool flick. It definitely helps round out the story and make more sense of the ending of the original series. Um, and and David Bowie's in it, so I guess there's that. Uh, next up is from 2001, and this would be Zoolander. I know we talked about this before, and David Bowie actually appears as himself in this movie, and of course he is the judge in the walk-off that... Uh, Derek and um, Hansel have and again he would not have been there for this movie had he not been such an amazing uh, musician and someone who had been so impactful on pop culture and things related to pop culture and art i.e. fashion so there you have that and it was an amazing Excellently timed thing, and I love how he has this kind of this throne that he sits on where he's kind of holding court as he does the judging of the walk-off. It's just an excellent, subtle little touch to that film. And then finally, we have from 2006, The Prestige. Um, it's a mystery drama film directed by Christopher Nolan. The film actually stars Hugh Jackman and Christ- uh, Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Charlotte Johansson. Um, and then... There is a very small role played by uh, David Bowie. He plays uh, Nikola Tesla, a fictionalized version of the real-life inventor. And um, he adds his role. This is probably by far and away, I would have to say, my actual favorite role of his because despite its brevity, it's almost like he was able to embody the entire movie in a character, which is really, really hard to do, uh, first of all. But second of all, in such a limited capacity within this larger narrative of the film. And it's simultaneously creepy and yet compelling. So definitely just one of the many things that makes that movie pretty darn cool. So my picks again... Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me from 1992, which I realized was very confusing, but so is the movie and even more so the TV series. <laughs> uh, Zoolander from 2001 and The Prestige from 2006. Take it away, Tim. Very nice and very informative picks, Matthew. Okay, so my three movies, uh, I'm going to try to get through them relatively quick. And with that, one of them, I'm going to read a couple of little paragraphs from this website about uh, my third and final choice of David Bowie films. The language it uses couldn't say it any better myself as to how I feel about the film. So the first movie, I'm just going to mention it, Labyrinth from 1986. Yeah, it's an obvious choice, but it was my introduction 
to David Bowie's acting. It was also my first introduction to David Bowie's crotch with his massive codpiece in a children's movie. The movie itself is very entertaining as a kid, but that damn codpiece, you watch it now as an adult, and it's like, Jesus Christ, what were they thinking? They weren't really hiding anything at all. The bulge was literally a bulge. I think the term, the word bulge, that definition must have come from David Bowie's own bulge, because that is the bulgiest of all bulges, David Bowie's uh, codpiece. What also makes Labyrinth entertaining to even look back on now is David Bowie's sexuality in the film, which is pretty strong for a kids movie, a Jim Henson kids movie, even even during the even for the eighties. Uh, we've talked about this in in a couple discussions in the past. Matt and I have about how eighties kids movies are more mature, and they don't treat kids as idiots. They don't try to sugarcoat. Too much of of mature story elements like violence, the idea of death, which made those films undeniably more entertaining to watch because you really didn't have any idea what could happen next, especially like with the Goonies, with the type of language they'd use, kids like damn and hell and, and, and so forth. Labyrinth, there's no cursing in it, but the movie revolves around a selfish teenage girl played by Jennifer Connelly who is in charge of watching her baby brother, I think it is, and the the baby brother gets kidnapped by the Goblin King, who is David Bowie, and she has to solve this mysterious labyrinth within a given period of time, like 12, 13, 14 hours, and if she solves that labyrinth, she will get her baby brother back and be able to take him back home to safety away from the evil Goblin King and all his minions and and whatnot. Again, it's a fun movie. It's catchy music, especially the let's, not let's dance, but the Goblin dance song that he sings. Uh, But the movie overall is very dark and mysterious and spooky. So Labyrinth has always stuck with me, and that is my first choice. Second choice is from 1975, The Man Who Fell to Earth. This one is directed by Nicholas Roeg. Roeg... We uh, we discussed one of his movies a couple years ago, Don't Look Now, which is with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, uh, the couple that lost their daughter, got killed, and they're living in Rome, and the past of the daughter is kind of haunting the family, mainly the father, when the mother is becoming more open to the idea of moving forward. Uh, he's still kind of stuck in the past. And that movie is very character-driven. It's about how the characters get from point A to point B within their psyche. And The Man Who Fell to Earth, because this is another Nicholas Roeg movie, this one came out in 75, so a few years after Don't Look Now, it it still has the same type of flavor, where it's character-driven, heavily character-driven, and not much, uh, and, and there's not a lot of story development. And this is best resembled by its pacing. The movie does have a slow pace to it. It's a, it's a slow-burning movie. This movie, The Man Who Fell to Earth, is David Bowie's first role. Uh, it's about an alien who crash lands on Earth, and it's desperately trying to find a way to ship water back to its home planet, where everybody on that planet is dying, or not dying, but they're suffering through a horrendous drought. 
Again, it's an often slow-churning flick that focuses on the characters and the ideas. Uh, David Bowie was very was perfect for this movie because he gives a very alien-like performance with his slender body. This movie also came out when Ziggy Stardust was popular. So in this film, he was taking on his Ziggy Stardust persona. He has the hair, the super white face, his cheekbones are shown prominently. It is also said that uh, allegedly this movie was shot while David Bowie was on a cocaine binge. So he was doing like 10 milligrams of cocaine before every shoot or something like that. So if that is true, it's kind of a myth, but probably true. But if it is, it is very much apparent on screen. He plays the character really well. And it's one definitely worth checking out if you are a fan of his type of movies. Because it is important to note that David Bowie movies aren't liked by all, <laughs> or maybe even by many. It's an acquired taste. Because, yeah, it's good, but you really have to like the message of the movie to really accept the movie for what it is because they're not at all perfect but it's really the underlining message and meaning within the film and the characters and uh in the performances that really make these films worthwhile and something special and the third and final favorite david bowie performance of mine comes from the 1983 film merry christmas mr lawrence and this is when he is stuck in the Japanese POW camp. And I'm going to read from this article, uh, this PaceMagazine.com article, David Bowie, actor 1947-2016. This is written by the Paste movie staff. This came out January 15th of this year. And the Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence segment of the article was actually written by Dom Sinicola. And I'm just going to read uh, a few portions of this here. It's uh, pretty solidly a superstar by this point and already flush with acting experience. David Bowie is Major Selliers, a British soldier captured by the Japanese during the thick of World War II, sent to a POW camp on Java, overseen by Captain Yanoi, played by a legendary musician in his own right. He is a strikingly beautiful man with a penchant for eyeshadow and blush who struggles to oppress his obsession with this new prisoner, knowing full well the severe punishment that awaits any homoerotic activity under his army's strict Bushido code. No one actually says anything out loud about what it is that's just so seductive about Sellers, David Bowie's character. Of course, though the film is a swim with googly eyes and platitudes and thoughtful notes of concern for Sellers in his general disregard for the authority of his Japanese captors. Instead, we as viewers sincerely believe that it makes sense that Japanese military bureaucracy would nominally tolerate Sellier's antics during wartime, that anyone who even glimpses the man will be taken aback by his sharp features and effortless carry, swept as we are in the limitless potential of David Bowie's presence. Oshima's film operates pretty handedly as a case for David Bowie's sainthood. With swagger empirical and weirdness minimal, Bowie skirts the line between wit and tragedy, mean-mugging plenty while the camera laps up his every micro-gesture. When Yanoi later in the film loses his cool over Callier's incessant impudence, the captain becomes a thinly-veiled manifestation of desperation. 
He knows he's losing control and that his desire will destroy him, but he can't help himself, so he rages against his heart's need. Even Sergeant Hera, an unhinged drunk who forced an underling to commit Sapukin upon the revelation that he had buggered a Swedish POW, can't help but sort of love in his own deranged way Bowie's Selliers, Enough, at least, to turn away from his destructive ways and find some peace in the film's conclusion. Bowie's character himself, the irrepressible major Strafer Selliers, can't survive the life-rending magnetic core that is David Bowie. If there was ever a first film to watch to begin to comprehend why it is that everyone on this planet in this moment, feels the need to express devoted love for the indelible memory of David Bowie. It's this one. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, wherein scores of men love him so tenderly they come out in full force to sing for him while he suffers a torture which inevitably martyrs him. Because again, Oshima's canonization complex... Uh, and the article goes on from there, end all quotes. So yes, my three favorite David Bowie performances, Labyrinth from 1986, The Man Who Fell to Earth, 1975, and finally, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence from 1985. Awesome. Awesome. All right. <clears throat> well, those are excellent. Those are definitely better choices than I have because, well... You, we already talked about that. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be doing another three squared. Uh, we did have another celebrity passing um, over this past week. And, of course, that was Alan Rickman. So we will be going over our favorite Alan Rickman roles for next week. And that concludes yet another three squared and brings us to... The Movie <laughs> So this week, due to um, basically Matt fucking up some scheduling shit, we have a little bit different list of movies <laughs> than we were supposed to have. Um, the movies for this week were originally going to be The Big Short, Brooklyn, and Trumbo. However, due to the sheer volume of movies we needed to watch, Tim and I collaborated behind the scenes and threw Steve Jobs into the mix. So then the list became The Big Short, Brooklyn, Trumbo, and Steve Jobs. And then today happened, and Matt screwed the pooch, and I did not see Trumbo. So Trumbo has now been moved and pushed back to episode 164, which is next week, and now our movies this week are... The Big Short, Brooklyn, and Steve Jobs. So, that's fun, and that's where we are. <laughs> where where do you want to start? How about we kick it off with the very harmless Brooklyn? Okay. Brooklyn. Uh, 2015 historical period drama film. It's directed by John Crowley. It stars... Uh, let me make sure I'm going to say this correctly. Uh... Sersha, it's it, she's she's um, clearly Irish. Sershi, I think it's Sershi. Is it Sershi? Yeah, because I've got I've got the schwa sound here for her actual grammatical breakdown. Oh man, uh, I S U R hyphen 
S H schwa sound upside down E. Oh, we're trying. <laughs> yes. See, we're 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 somewhat culturally aware over here. <laughs> um, hashtag Matt so white. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm gonna go with Sersha. S A O I R S E. That sounds right, right? That's anyway. All right. So Sersha Ronan. Emery Cohen, Domhnall Gleeson. You're going to hear that name a lot. Uh, Jim Broadbent and Julie Walters. Um, this is covering the story of a young lady back in the early 1950s. Uh, her name is Ailish. Now, it's spelled E-I-L-I-S, but it's, it's actually pronounced Ailish. Uh, Ailish Lacey, and she is a young woman from Southeast Ireland. Um, she works in a little store, but her sister uh, has a connection with a with an old parish priest who is relocated to uh, New York, who decides to sponsor her and get her set up so that she can go and have and actually make a life for herself in America. When and of course, where does she move to? give you a hint it's the title of the movie once there you know she falls in love and life is good but she uh has but she has a very huge uh life-changing event that has her go back to ireland for a time and will she be able to live in ireland or will she make it back to the states will love triumph will she find love again these are the things that are tackled in this film now i'm you know you you hear me making my little fun voice and everything this is a very 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 well acted and simple story now that is in no way shape or form trying to put this film down because sometimes all you ever really need is a simple story told well to be a refreshing breath of life into an otherwise weary and doled out and overly saturated comic book world of movies. And I think that is why this movie has caught on as well as it has because that's what it is. It's a love story. It's got um, it, it's it's got fun, vivid characters, even if they are lacking in depth overall. Um, and I do mean as a whole and the characters themselves. But it's genuine, and this is what's and this is the thing is that the movie itself is genuine. My wife and I actually saw this. Um, on uh, was one of two movies we saw actually on Saturday and my wife absolutely adored this film she actually uh, would give it a five if she could rate things so for take that for what it's worth um, but even though this movie is just a wonderfully well acted and simple drama uh, told well for me that's not enough and while I, I am not going to sit here and say it's a terrible movie or anything, please don't, please don't misunderstand. I do, however, think that much like, um, 
uh, what was the movie with uh, w- w- that we were talking about, Tim? We covered it a few weeks ago with uh, Sherlock. Um, in Mr. Mac- Holmes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Mr. Holmes. I really feel like this, much like Mr. Holmes, is just a glorified TV movie. And I and I don't and again, please don't misunderstand. It's not to say that it's bad. I just don't think that it's, you know I, I don't I don't believe that it is um worth the best picture nomination. For example, I'll give you a really good for instance. Alish is on the boat going to America. She meets up with this nice little blonde lady who, you know, decides to take some pity on her and help a, help a young girl out, right? And so she does. They end up on deck and they're kind of talking about things. And it is the worst blue screen. I mean, I've seen better technical work in Doctor Who and Downton Abbey for crying out loud. And this is supposed to be a best picture nomination. So it's things like that. It's it's the fact that everything in the movie has a nice little place. Uh, she gets a job at a department store. Ailish gets a job at a, department, at a department store. And her manager is this um, seemingly uppity, prim and proper uh, person, but of course, underneath, she's she's really a good cat, you know, and and she's and she's really there to to look after the girls, and she does care, but you have to warm up to her a little bit. And it's these just perfect little characters that are there, and again, all genuine, all nice, but not something that necessarily is going to be earth shattering or something that will be remembered as in the long term as something that's truly worthy of best picture is it a bad film absolutely not but it's just not that amazing either great performances wonderful story 3.25 i assume it's my turn (laughs) yep um, so everything that Matt liked about the movie, uh, like what he said about it being charming or it being a charming film, I completely agree with him. It's a very easy film to watch. You have It's chock full of likable characters. There's nobody in it that's a, a, a bad guy. Um, all the all the characters that are kind of mean, that are mean spirited are done are presented in a way that's very human you know like there's this one girl in there that's really annoying that she's kind of uh, forced to hanging out with and how that character is presented the annoying one is done is, is done in a way to where like you've been in that situation before you know that person and a lot of the characters are very much like that maybe not necessarily you personally know that character or you know that uh or, or, or you're familiar with those character character traits, but you've seen that character in Downton Abbey, for example, or any other period PBC, PBC any other period PBS, BBC produced uh, miniseries or television show. And that is really the extent of my negative criticism towards the movie. 
Again, it's a very simple film, well shot, well acted. Um, it's just a little too predictable, the story is. I liked how the movie looked. The movie was made to look and feel aesthetically as the time period. And I, I, I enjoyed that aspect a lot. So the movie, you know, in a way you can say it's too perfect. I love the humor and the, and the wit that was present in the dialogue. But it could have, I mean, it's, it's too, too, uh, too perfect, I think. It's too clean. It's too polished. Which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I give this movie, uh, I give this movie 4.25 out of 5. I would go back and rewatch it in a heartbeat. But it's just too predictable. I don't know if I can go back and rewatch this movie again. I probably could and enjoy it, but I wouldn't get as much out of it because, again, you know what's going to happen and what is at stake isn't as uh, doesn't ha- doesn't doesn't have enough weight, I guess, for it to be a true drama. Fair enough. So, where would you like to go next, sir? How about which one did you like the most between the last two? see i thought you were gonna start with steve jobs so we can get the shit out of the way and then talk about the good movies (laughs) or at least the better movies so the big short (laughs) okay let's do that then uh big short 2015 american biographical comedy drama film uh directed written directed and co-written by adam mckay um the other half of the writing team there was Charles Randolph. It stars Christian Bale, Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, and Brad Pitt, among a few other people in the film. And basically, this is the story of the guys who kind of discovered the holes and the flaws in our banking system, especially in terms of the subprime mortgage crisis that was impending. And they figured out a way to bet against it and win. Now, if you're not familiar with that kind of, if with that stuff, um, then this movie is probably a lot more would be will be a lot more interesting to you um it puts kind of a human face on the little guy you know on on the david versus goliath metaphor um kind of giving you an idea of who the david is in the show um the thing is is that if you do know more of the ins and outs and stuff and you did pay a little bit more attention to it then the subject matter of the film is really just kind of a it it's i don't want to say it's a byproduct but it's really more like a secondary i don't know it's kind of like the dessert if you will it's the icing on the cake of what now you need to depend on for good writing good acting and slick filmmaking and while i will say that the writing is above average and of course you've got some really heavy hitters in the acting department i think this is this film really more or less suffers from from the weight it it basically it can't it it can't stand up under its own weight we've got adam mckay back in this thing in the director's chair as as noted it's also uh one of the one of the big producers was brad pitt uh, it's starring Christian Bale and Steve Carell. I mean, so you've got all these big names here, and they try 
so hard, so very, very hard to make them look like the people they're trying to portray from eight years ago, eight, nine years ago. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me, 10 years ago, because the film starts in 2005. That instead of it being well written and slick uh, and and well acted and then slickly made it just kind of comes off as a trying too hard parody of the things that actually destroyed people's lives which to the film's credit in the last say i don't know nine minutes of the movie they kind of touch on that a little bit but whatever because all's well that ends well for the people who made the money right um it's not a bad movie. Uh, it's a little bit better than Concussion was for me, but I really just think that without a solid foundation um, for it to work off of, the only way anybody gets anything out of this is if they really didn't know all of what had happened leading up to the crisis, which in the last 10 years, if you have been well-informed, you already know. And Outside of that, the film doesn't really do anything for you. Um, so I give this one 2.75. It is definitely better than okay, but I can't really come away saying that I liked it. I think, however, that people who, the vast majority of the movie-going public who, who are... Who, who don't follow this kind of stuff, I think they'll be better entertained. I don't really feel like this movie should have been nominated in any way, shape, or form for Best Picture. What the shit. Go ahead, sir. From the director of Step Brothers, The Other Guys, Anchorman, 1 and 2, comes the Academy Award-nominated movie for Best Picture, The Big Short, Adam McKay. It's... God, that just cracks me up. And I, I, I gotta say that this didn't surprise me as much. I think this would have surprised me more. Uh, obviously, I thoroughly enjoyed the movie, but it would have surprised me more if I had not seen Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues, as even uh, especially the extended cut of Anchorman 2. Because in that extended cut, he does a lot of the things that I liked in this movie with the balancing of humor and drama and it's more so humor in anchorman but there is still some good kind of drama in it also um yeah if if i know if i didn't see that movie this i think the big short kind of would have it would have blown me out of the water a little bit uh uh due to adam mckay's directing uh, yes, I like this movie a lot. I'll just go ahead and say that it's a 4.25 out of 5 movie uh, for me. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry. It's a 4-star movie for me, not a 4.25 uh, film. It's a very funny movie. Uh, it's an excellent turn for Adam McKay. Uh, there's an excellent balance of humor and drama, as mentioned before, which is very impressive. The way that they do it in this film is very imp impressive. You never see anything like this in movies nowadays. In fact, I haven't seen a movie quite like this before, and I kind of think that's why this movie was nominated 
for uh, for an, an Academy Award for Best Picture. On top of that, you have a stellar ensemble cast, probably one of the best ensemble casts in any of the films that have come out this past year. Uh, it's up there with uh, with Straight Outta Compton. Um, and that's when I was saying earlier that I thought I like the big short more so than Spotlight because this ensemble cast is stronger than Spotlight and more effective. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I was just very impressed with the balance of humor and drama. Real characters are in this movie or these actors are playing real people. It feels like you're watching the real people. It feels like you are watching to an extent you're watching these, uh, 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 all, all the issues that come up in the film actually unfolding and watching the real story unfolding itself firsthand. Um, to an extent, of course, to the extent, and I'm not talking about like it feels like real life, but it feels like the real life that they are represent or that they are presenting to the audience within the film. My biggest complaint about the film is that the movie loses its slickness in in authenticity when the story breaks the fourth wall, uh, and that happens often. If you paid attention, I did not say as the characters break the fourth wall, because yes, characters do break the fourth wall, but the story itself breaks the fourth wall because they do these things that are more annoying than ingenious because most of the time it doesn't work out quite as well, I think, as what they thought or what they think. It's when... um, they they're discuss like a scene in a scene they're discussing something that doesn't make any sense to the to to one who is not familiar with the technical jargon of Wall Street, and so they're like, oh, you know, you probably don't understand what this is, but let's have Margot Robbie naked and in a bathtub explain it to you, and that's what happens. There is a short little segment where Margot Robbie is naked in a bathtub explaining whatever you you apparently didn't understand to you in a more clearer way, but in a way it's not really that much clearer because you're distracted by Margot Robbie naked in a bathtub. So it kind of backfires on them, you know, uh, on them, I think more than actually be effective. So again, I give this movie four point or not 4.25. I keep saying that, uh, but four out of five stars. I think it's really good. It's really slick and a very inventive film especially and there you have it all right and now uh okay so here we go steve jobs another in the slew of shit-tastic biographical drama films about uh steve jobs stars uh michael fassbender kate Winslet, seth rogan and jeff daniels um now kate winslet does a does a good job seth rogan really not bad um, I think he gets an A for effort. I think he gets a B minus <laughs> in actuality. But, um, and Jeff Daniels, I think very solid. Uh, but the thing is, is that overall the movie, uh, despite having a pretty good performance from Kate Winslet, when you've got just such an absolutely, um, craptacular movie, Somebody or something from that film has to be the cream of the crap. And in that case, and in this particular instance, is Michael Fassbender. He's a great actor. So naturally, 
he being miles ahead of the rest of the film overall, again, um, and I know that Tim is going to uh, expound definitely on Kate Winslet, so I'll let him talk more about that. Um, so when you're so far ahead of the rest of the shit, well, yeah, you're going to look like you're even more of a, an amazing actor than you are. He did not deserve a nomination for this film. This film is nothing more than a glorified series of vignettes that just says, oh, look at how shitty Steve Jobs was, but look at how amazing Steve Jobs was. What a fucking piece of shit. Um, I did not like this movie. This movie gets two stars. 1.75 for Fassbender, because he knows how to act. Point... <clears throat> two five, no, point two for Kate Winslet and point oh five for Seth Rogen and Jeff Daniels because, well, I just wanted to. There you go. Bring us home, Tim. Yeah, this is a 2.75 out of 5 movie for me. Originally, it was a three-star movie, but I can't say that I, I like the movie because I've only... Uh, I've seen it once and... The movie, and it was months and months ago. I saw it at a screening, and it it's always kind of stuck in my mind because it's directed by Danny Boyle and it's written by Aaron Sorkin. Yet the best character in the entire movie is Kate Winslet, who plays uh, Steve Jobs's assistant, and her name is oh yeah Joanna Hoffman. And I'm trying to remember she's from. Ah, shit. Uh, She's Armenian, I think. And so the movie is is split up into three different vignettes taking place. And each vignette is a period of time in the future, I guess. And how they shot the movie is they would go and rehearse one of the vignettes and they would shoot it. Then they would go back and rehearse the second one and shoot it. So very much like a play, I guess. Each vignette was its own thing. And... Through the course of the movie, Kate Winslet's accent gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And it's kind of funny because I, you totally, anybody, any casual moviegoer will be able to spot it. And I, you, and that, I mean, and that says a lot when she is the best one in the film. Her character is believable. Her motivations are believable. And you actually feel for her more than you feel for anybody else. Um, Steve Jobs' wife in the movie uh, is portrayed as whiny, self-centered uh, woman. Uh, a whiny, self-centered woman, uh, or is portrayed as whiny and self-centered. Uh, Steve Jobs is portrayed as autistic. <laughs> At least that's what I got. He just seemed kind of more autistic than a mad genius. Uh, more of like a maybe uh, misunderstood autism even, and I just overall I you just I just really don't I really couldn't grasp what exactly this movie is trying to say, what stand is it trying to make, what is its voice, and I got nothing. It's written by Aaron Sorkin, supposed to be the best one of the best writers of TV and of movies. And it's directed by Danny Boyle, who we all know and love. He did Slumdog Millionaire. He did Train Spotting, and this movie just felt rushed. It felt like it was it, they put it together really fast just so the movie was made. Um, originally, 
I think Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio was supposed to be Steve Jobs. Christian Bale was supposed to be Steve Jobs. And then it ended up going to Michael Fassbender. Yes, Fassbender plays a good, is a great actor. But to me, I felt his character was more one-dimensional than anything else. Because by the end of the movie, there was supposed to be this revelation about his character. And I still didn't get what the hell that was. And I really didn't feel like there was the next step for the character. And you really can't have that next step with the character when you already know, when you really don't care a whole lot for him, I should say. And and, and that, that was another, uh, that kind of ties into what is this movie trying to say? How are you trying, how is this movie, or what exactly is this movie trying to say about Steve Jobs? I think that is a more accurate question to ask about this film. So this is a 2.75 out of 5 for me. Uh, The reason why it's not any worse, it's because some of it is good. Some of the writing is good. Uh, Some of the direction is good. But it's all the scenes with Kate Winslet are spot on, in my opinion. Uh, and I really, I, I think Seth Rogen was more of a distraction than anything else, really. And I think it's because of the writing. The writing is poor. So I really can't even knock uh, Danny Boyle for directing. He did, I think, everything he could in his power to direct a superb film. But the writing at its core is not good. It's very pretentious. So Steve Jobs, 2.75 out of 5 for me. All right. Well, that is going to conclude the movies. And hang on to your hats, folks. We got a buttload of movies for you next week. We've got Trumbo, Carol, The Danish Girl, Joy, and 45 Years. That's right. A five-flick movie week coming at you next week. So get ready for the long haul. Hopefully you won't get any theater butt. Um... So that is that, and I believe, without further ado, it is time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace, and you can find them at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can also track down Tim on Twitter. If that is your heart's desire, just climb aboard that information superhighway to do so. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Sir Ronan, I get to say this. If you don't have eyebrows, you don't really have a face. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.